We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Chief of Medical Ethics here at The Unity Project. He's an MD, psychiatrist, and for more than 15 years, a professor of psychiatry at University of California, Irvine School of Medicine and director of their medical ethics program. He also served on the ethics committee for California Department of State Hospitals. This was until he was terminated in December for not complying with their unconstitutional vaccine mandate and is currently in litigation fighting his wrongful termination. But before I get into the array of topics we covered on today's podcast, I want to call out an egregious violation of ethics in education and morally unconscionable decision by the administration of Granada Hills High School in California. They decided to segregate students and not allow unvaccinated seniors to walk in their graduation ceremony this week. As if the last two years weren't disruptive enough and difficult enough to deny a student the ability to stand with their classmates and receive their diploma is wrong on so many levels. I implore you to get involved, call Granada Hills High School, and let them know that this is unconstitutional and frankly, unethical and immoral. Let's get back to the topics today. So we kick off this episode talking about the ramifications of AB 2098, the California bill that will hinder the rights of doctors to practice medicine in the state and forever change the patient-doctor relationship. In addition to the endless list of unethical practices and protocols being administered across the state, Dr. Cariotti gives us a preview of his new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of Biomedical Security State. I'm particularly excited about this book and I hope you find this conversation as alarming and educational as I did. We've included a link in the show description to a petition that you can sign to help Granada Hills Charter School seniors walk in their graduation. Dr. Aaron Cariotti, thank you for being here with us today. We have so much to talk about uh, with, re- with regard to ethics and what's happening in the medical community as it relates to COVID. And we just got some new news that sadly, uh, Senate Bill 2098 looks like it passed here in the state of California. So uh, maybe that's a good starting point. I don't know what you want to you want to start. Yeah, there? absolutely. I mean, this is this is a really egregious bill that's passed mm-hmm. in California that's going to have uh, seriously negative consequences on the practice of medicine in the mm-hmm. state. And basically, what the bill does is subjects any physician who says anything publicly, mm-hmm. or even in a clinical setting, making a recommendation to a patient that runs contrary to one or another public health recommendation. Mm-hmm. Uh, subjects that physician to potential investigation by the medical board and discipline by the medical board, which could include losing one's medical license. Wow. And you know, for a for a doctor, that's that would be analogous to a lawyer being disbarred. Basically, right. it's it's worse than losing your job. If I 
get fired at the hospital where I work. Mm -hmm. I can go work at another hospital or start a private practice. But if I lose my medical license, I can't practice medicine at all. So this is the most severe threat that you could hang over a physician's head. Um, And it's a threat where what might constitute a violation is always going to be hazy. Sure. It's never going to be entirely clear. I mean, you look at how many times our public health agencies in the last two years have Mm flip-flopped on various recommendations, sometimes, you know, entirely reversing a previous Mm -hmm. recommendation. So initially, the CDC recommended against masks. Later, they recommended in favor of masks. Mm -hmm. Now they recommend N95 masks, but not cloth or surgical masks, Mm -hmm. um, so on and so forth. So uh, which of those three recommendations, if any, were correct versus incorrect, they, they, they obviously can't all three sure. be correct. Well, and it's if you look at the, the language of the bill, I think it's murky by design, right? That's right. That's right, because this is a good way for external um, agencies, in this case the state mm-hmm. and the medical board, which is directly appointed by the governor. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is a political entity with a, a direct report to the mm-hmm. sort of highest politician in the state. Uh, this gives them, you know, enormous power and authority over each and every, not only over each and every individual physician, but even over that physician's interactions with the patient and the privacy of the clinical right. setting. Whatever happened to HIPAA and the patient-doctor <laughs> confidentiality um, clauses? Whatever well, happened the, to yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the sacredness of the doctor-patient relationship has been severely compromised in the last couple of decades, but mm-hmm. like many trends in medicine, that was accelerated mm-hmm. during the pandemic. So, for example, um, we saw that physicians are what I call our discretionary latitude, our, our ability to exercise our individual medical judgment for mm-hmm. the sake of this particular patient in front of right. me. That was already massively squeezed during the pandemic. This is not the first time the Medical Board of California has acted in authoritarian um, and probably unconstitutional ways. So I've mentioned before, it was uh, August of last year Mm -hmm. that I received a letter from the State Medical Board saying that any physician who wrote an inappropriate exemption for masks or other COVID-related measures was the language in the letter. Uh, could have our license subject to disciplinary action or investigation, et cetera. Uh-huh. Again, never defining what constituted an appropriate versus an inappropriate exemption. Right, right. And as a consequence of, of that, um, and I talked to my colleagues in medicine, none of us had mm-hmm. ever received a similar letter wow. like that from the Medical Board of California. This, it was very, very chilling. And doctors interpreted that to mean I'm just not going to write any vaccine exemptions. Of course. Um, you know, much less mask exemptions because, uh, because I just don't know what the standard of care there is. Mm-hmm. It's not defined in the letter. There's no reference to um, particular recommendations that could be taken mm-hmm. uh, to be a standard of care. And I think that was also deliberate and by, yeah. and by design. So as a consequence, if you have an appropriate reason to get a medical exemption Uh for a COVID vaccine. You still can't get one in California. I I tell the example of a young patient of mine who went to his rheumatologist, uh, the specialist in this patient's autoimmune condition, and this specialist who'd been treating him for a long time said, I don't think you should get the COVID vaccine. Given your young age, you're not a significant risk Mm -hmm. from this virus, 
But given what I've seen about uh, the vaccine side effects, I think you're at enhanced risk mm -hmm. of vaccine adverse effects because of your autoimmune condition. Right. Same patient who just heard this from her specialist physician right. asked that physician <laughs> immediately after he said that, can you write me a medical exemption because right. I'm subjected to a vaccine mandate at work. And the same doctor said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that wow. because I'm, and, and admit it, I'm worried about my medical license. Yeah. Right? So that's, I think, a, a bigger even ethical question, right? I think I shared with you, I, I personally had an experience recently. I went to the doctor, uh, just asked the doctor what his opinion of the vaccine was. Um, he was incredibly pro-vaccine. And my next logical question was, well, tell me what you do as a medical pr uh, practitioner to educate yourself about the vaccine. Um, and it's to me, it's an interesting point because there's not a single doctor right now outside of a few pharmaceutical executives that might be medical doctors that actually know what's contained in these, these vaccines, right? So nobody's operating under informed consent, yet ethically, it seems like this, this balance of, of, of what's, what's ethically reasonable um, and responsible has been pushed aside. Yeah. Doctors are just following a narrative. Um, they're following whatever the CDC is saying, the FDA, and. Um, I know, as you've pointed out, the CDC, oftentimes those people are not medical doctors giving out medical advice. They're writing memos. That's right. right. That's right. The CDC is not a super doctor for mm -hmm. the entire nation. They're not even a medical organization. Right. They're a public health organization. There's a difference between those two things. Mm -hmm. They make recommendations for populations as a whole when mm -hmm. it comes to certain types of illnesses, particularly infectious diseases. But mm -hmm. they don't have and never claim to have expertise in various medical conditions right. that may be relevant for a particular decision like like a vaccine. But the fact is, what, what you're alluding to there with your own uh, physician and the lack of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, about the vaccine has to do with, again, trends that we're seeing in medicine that have been developing for a couple of decades mm -hmm. now, but that were accelerated mm -hmm. during the pandemic. That's the pattern. Mm -hmm. One of those one of those trends is physicians become increasingly subspecialized, yep. very, very busy, and in medical system, many medical systems, and look, there's a lot of good physicians out there. There's a lot of well-educated physicians. Mm -hmm. Most physicians try to stay up on the things that they treat, right? Right, And they try to keep up on the medical literature on the things that they treat. Mm -hmm. But there are very few generalists out there anymore, mm -hmm. and really every physician should be enough of a generalist that they can make recommendations that impact their patients outside of their scope right. of expertise. So if a physician is going to encourage you to get a vaccine, right. they need to educate themselves right. well, enough I, to know about that vaccine and, and not would, just get their information from CNN or right. from the policy that their own hospital happens to right. institute right. around that vaccine. And I would think that a physician, uh, doesn't matter what your specialty is, we are immersed in a pandemic, or at least the media will have you believe that. And uh, there, I think there are key indicators all around us. Even as a layperson, not a medical professional, I know that the CDC and the FDA have openly stated that you can still acquire and transmit the virus even after having been vaccinated. Right. To me, that seems logically like that would be kind of the first key indicator in a decision-making process that a practitioner would use to determine whether or not they should recommend this to their patients, right? And then, you know, the second one being, I think also even really by the CDC's own data, you, you know that a pediatric patient, as an example, is at statistically zero risk, right? But so, so even if you don't 
believe that maybe the vaccine is, is harmful, which we can debate, and I think we probably will get into that to this, in this conversation today. But um, I would imagine as a medical practitioner, you know that they're, they're not effective because they don't stop the acquisition and transmission. And you know that there's a, a significant um, set of, or subset, I should say, of, of society, right, that's not impacted by this virus. Why would you go out and recommend? Right. It, it just feels very much like they're checking a box. Well, physicians should know that, and they right. should be able to draw the logical inferences of mm -hmm. that, that rather than taking a one-size-fits-all approach to vaccination, mm -hmm. we need to have an age-stratified and risk-stratified approach right. that's individualized to each patient, mm -hmm. and clearly recognizing that, for example, healthy children do not need this vaccine right. and are, are, are clearly at more risk of harm from this vaccine than of, than of benefit. Um, and then there's populations in the middle where it probably depends on the patient. Yeah. Uh, it might depend on which vaccine you're talking about too. Not all of these vaccines are the same, yeah. it, turns, it turns out, in terms mm -hmm. of safety and efficacy. So there's that too. Yeah. All three of the COVID vaccines are being lumped together. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not the same product and they don't have exactly the same effects on the body. So that needs to be understood by doctors who are making these kinds of blanket recommendations. But we've, got, we've gotten, physicians have gotten into these uh, for-profit systems that mm -hmm. operate um, on, on a kind of what I call turnstile medicine. If you go to Disneyland, you go through a lot of these turnstiles at right. a place like Disneyland. Mm -hmm. This is a place where there's, there's just a masterful level of engineering mm -hmm. to move people through the system, yeah. right? That's how yeah. it works. You, you just, it's people moving, right? right? And it's get, checking boxes so that mm -hmm. you can go on a certain number of rides and get, get your meals and get toileted and all, right. <laughs> like right. all the things oh, yeah. that need to happen. And medicine has gone very much in that direction mm -hmm. where a doctor becomes a kind of functionary mm -hmm. in a sort of turnstile assembly line medical system or mechanism where they end up just checking the boxes. Mm -hmm. So electronic medical records, right, which were supposed to make communication easier, uh, have actually just become data gathering mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And uh, physicians have become glorified data entry clerks, right. right, rather than sitting and facing you face to face right. and doing, doing a detailed history mm -hmm. that's relevant to your complaint mm -hmm. and your symptoms. They're checking boxes on do you wear a seatbelt and are you a smoker and things that m might be important. Are, you know, contributory, sure. maybe ancillary contributory factors, but, but not necessarily. If you have a broken root. arm, that's right. not, and the doctor only has 10 minutes with you, yeah. that's not what you need to be talking about. Right. Whether or not you smoke has, is, is not so, the emergent concern if you have a broken arm. <laughs> exactly. So medicine has become far less personalized mm -hmm. and individualized. And I think most of us have the experience mm -hmm. of going to a doctor or a hospital and and feeling like we're not seen we're not mm -hmm. heard um you know we're not sort of personally right. examined uh we're just run through a sort yeah. of standardized battery of tests sure. and some algorithm spits out a recommendation on the right. other end which may or may not quite fit what we mm -hmm. need and mm -hmm. medicine is very much moved in that direction and mm -hmm. i i think I mean, in their defense, when physicians are demanded to see uh, four or five patients an hour, yeah. right, that's all right. they can do sure. is, you know, attend to one symptom or one set mm -hmm. of symptoms, try to do their best, you know, yeah. working in a system like this. Yeah. But if you're a cog in the machine, it's hard right. to operate outside the logic right. and the, the efficiency right. of the machine. 
it feels very much like um, in order to effectively engage in the medical system anymore, you need to be yourself an advocate. Um, Unfortunately, yeah, that's, right. that's I mean, true. I, I'll use the other example. I went another time to the doctor recently, and of course they wanted me to wear the mask, and I immediately said, listen, I have a cardiac, I have a cardiac um, issue, and wearing a mask actually has complications for me. I can actually induce a cardiac arrhythmia. And the answer was, well, sorry, it's the rules. And I, and I actually had to stop and say, hold on, I'm in a medical environment in front of a medical practitioner and I'm telling you that I have a cardiac, a, a cardiac situation. And if you ask me to wear a mask for, for a prolonged period of time, it will induce a cardiac arrhythmia. And your answer to me is, sorry, it's the rules. That tells me that, that you're more interested in following a rule That's than right. critically thinking, than uh, worrying about your patient's health and safety. That's right. right. I mean, health, the health of the individual patient in front of you has to be the overriding and in a sense, the only goal mm -hmm. of medicine. But when you have these kinds of perverse incentives yeah. built into the system and these carrots and sticks that are mm -hmm. operating, sometimes in a very heavy handed way, if you don't follow the rules, yeah. you won't be licensed anymore or your clinic won't be licensed or what have you, then the rules become an end in themselves. Right. Right. Well, much like, you know, to a certain extent, your story, right? Well, yeah, I think my, my example of what happened to me mm -hmm. at the University of California, where mm -hmm. I had spent my entire career as an academic physician, is a good case in point. Mm -hmm. When I declined COVID vaccination, uh, when my medical exemption was twice denied, mm -hmm. uh, the university didn't look at my record of patient care and um, patient advocacy, my, mm -hmm. my work, uh, developing the university's own policies during the pandemic, right. uh, my, my work in, in ethics, and, and mm -hmm. you know, when I challenged the ethics of the university's vaccine mandate in federal court, well, you know, it, it wasn't time for free and open discussion or debate. Mm -hmm. The way a university should function, right. it was time to remove this dissident from their ranks. Right. So I ended up losing my job sure. over this whole right. issue. Well, when there are so many layers of issues with that, I mean, one of them being that you reference at the university, which is a learning institution, and you're not allowed to have any questioning or critical thinking or free and open debate. I mean, and of course, that's that's one of, of many layers that are that's wrong with what happened to you. Given everything that's going on in these hospitals, and we had an opportunity to speak with Nurse Erin, not to be confused with Dr. Erin Cariotti, uh, she was at Ground Zero at Elmhurst. If you remember, that's the hospital they had all the big freezer trucks and she was telling me this unbelievable story where patients there was a very specific protocol patients came in they were diagnosed with either covid positive or covid negative if they're covid positive there was just a protocol it was like a one size fits all you get immediately sedated get a ventilator and remdesivir and 100 percent of her patients died and the story was was unbelievable to me and i continue to question how do um, medical personnel operate in that environment when you're looking at what I would believe is a clear it, it's clear evidence right in front of you that people are being murdered yeah. ethically why you know again I know that in your training and in really anyone who's in the medical field whether you're a certified nursing assistant all the way up to you know a specialist and surgeon and so on you receive ethics training what is going on in these environments it's a great question. It's a question I've puzzled over for mm -hmm. two years. Yeah. Um, why haven't more people like Nurse Aaron mm -hmm. stepped out and spoken out when they saw things going wrong, when they saw 
basic ethics principles being violated, principles like informed consent, mm -hmm. when public health officials saw that transparency and other basic ethical principles in public health are being routinely violated, how come we're not seeing more people right. speak out? Uh, it, it, another interviewer, I was on with Tucker Carlson, he asked the same or similar question, and I said, right. well, look at what happened to me, Exhibit A. It doesn't mm -hmm. take too many people um, being fired or excluded right. from their ability to operate in, in in a medical institution for other people to sort of take notice mm -hmm. <laughs> and get the memo. Uh, so that's part of it. Part of it's just plain fear. Part of it is um, it, it can be hard for people existing in a rigid hierarchy right. to question what the system is doing or what the mm -hmm. people above them are doing. It takes a very courageous nurse to question doctor's mm -hmm. orders, mm -hmm. just the way that the hospital right. system is arranged and the way that people are conditioned day in, day out mm -hmm. to operate within that system. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that happened is that doctors and nurses were subjected to the same kinds of large-scale social forces right. that confused a lot of people during the pandemic, yeah. right? So we've heard our friend Dr. Robert Malone has mentioned mm -hmm. Matthias Desmond's theory of, of mass formation, this right. idea that people who are socially isolated, mm -hmm. as we were during lockdowns, right. and experiencing high levels of anxiety, as we were because mm -hmm. of all the COVID-related news mm -hmm. that we were consuming, and were feeling frustrated and angry, could find solidarity again by sort of circling around a common enemy, a common scapegoat, yeah. Yeah. right? Which at a certain point, the narrative was introduced that many people just bought into uncritically uh -huh. that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated or right. that this, you know, this was not enough people cooperating right. with what the authorities tell them to do, yeah. whether it's lockdowns or masks or school closures or whatever. The right. critics are responsible for the fact that so many people are dying. And so no one wanted to be classed right. with the critics. Uh, no one wanted to be not only professionally ostracized, but socially right. ostracized. Sure, it was a huge stigma. Like that. It was interesting, too. <clears throat> she also pointed something out that, I mean, obviously you are a psychiatrist and uh, you, you have a deep background in ethics. Something that I never thought about and put together was, you know, here she is. She's doing what I consider to be heroic work, right, where she is literally calling out yeah. Um, people that are committing murder or they're complicit in it, which took tremendous bravery. But then she said, look, there's this, this psycholo psychological element where we're all leaving the hospital every day. We're exhausted. We've seen almost 100% of our patients die. Yeah. And we walk out and there's a parade calling us heroes, right? They're calling us heroes for engaging in a protocol that is leading to the death of these patients. Right. Right. So then it's like this, this hero mentality that people start getting. And it feeds that. Oh, absolutely. There was a sign outside my work. I still remember glancing at it for the last time when I drove away from campus <laughs> right. the day that I was uh, placed on investigatory leave. No, but <laughs> huge block letters, right. like three foot high, heroes yeah. work here yeah. on the corner of Chapman and City Drive. Um, and we had, you know, we had police and fire trucks driving by during the lockdowns, honking and doing the sirens and the uh, little, you know, little parades for us. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, you know, encouraging us that we were the ones sort of taking on this pandemic, right. even if especially a lot of the measures that were rolled out early on were deeply misguided. We recognize mm -hmm. now 
right. that we need to actually avoid ventilators. Some, some patients, you can't avoid them. Right. But it, we need to avoid ventilators right. as much as possible, do everything we can to avoid right. placing patients on mm -hmm. ventilators. Uh, for example, remdesivir is, is clearly understood now to mm -hmm. be ineffective and have pretty serious liver toxicity and, mm -hmm. um, and kidney toxicity in many patients. Right. So, um, but, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it, doctors and nurses and hospital administrators and healthcare systems are not immune from all the same social and political mm -hmm. and, and legal and kind of cultural climate forces that we were all subjected to right, right. during the pandemic. In fact, they're subjected to more of those sure. because they're going to be consuming more news mm -hmm. because it's relevant to their work. They're going to be, they're going to be subjected to a lot right. more information, right. quote unquote, information that's funneled their way mm -hmm. from the powers that be that are trying to manage this mm -hmm. pandemic in a particular way. So if anything, they're subjected to even more, right. uh, dare I say, propaganda and coercion than your average person who's not a healthcare practitioner. So it takes right. a, a special kind of nurse to be able to step out of that stream mm -hmm. where everyone's just floating down in this direction and say, hey, wait a minute, this, this doesn't make sense. I think we're actually harming people rather right. than helping them. Yeah, it's incredible. I think we saw it very early on. I, I personally listened to a Children's Hospital of Orange County um, webinar that they did that was talking about how to pediatricians talk to parents that are resistant to getting their children vaccinated. And, you know, we were sitting in on this this uh, webinar and they were saying things like, oh, myocarditis is it's you know, it's 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 really insignificant. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly mild. It's mostly mild. And then, you know, what what I lost my mind about and probably got, which was what got, got me kicked off the webinar because I was in the chat saying, yeah. whoa, whoa, this is against the, the Hippocratic Oath and it's an ethical violation because there was a doctor that was saying, you know, what I recommend is that instead of, um, you know, really talking to parents about the, the ugly things that can happen from this vaccine, you know, you really want to steer them to things like, oh, you know, the arm can be sore, they might get a little fever. Um, almost as if they're glossing over and yeah. intentionally uh, misleading parents and, that's and called, not. That's called propaganda, yeah. not informed consent. Yeah. And propaganda can be mm -hmm. as much about what is not said mm -hmm. as about what is stated explicitly that may be, may be wrong. What is it that we're leaving out? So mm -hmm. it's, it's this is a really interesting example mm -hmm. because look at the way in which that whole webinar was framed. The question, the question that was posed right. was not, how do we give people accurate information about these vaccines right. so they can make good decisions for themselves and their family, right? <laughs> so the, the behavioral outcome that they wanted to see was predetermined in yes. advance, yes. and it was never questioned, mm -hmm. right? A needle in every arm. So the only question that they addressed during that pandemic is, mm -hmm. how do you persuade people right. to do that, mm -hmm. right? Well, when you begin in that way, you're going to deliberately leave out information that's not going to lead of course. people in that behavioral direction, and you're going to emphasize stuff mm -hmm. that you think will right. induce them to do that. And that's the very definition right. of propaganda. I mean, that's 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 what it is. And Absolutely. This, this pattern repeated over and over and mm -hmm. over during the pandemic. The whole public health establishment, yeah. the medical establishment, took this approach that we're going to decide in advance. There's not going to be any mm -hmm. debate about it. That's right. That the behavioral outcome that we want. Everyone stay home, everyone wear a mask, needle in every, whatever it is. Right. 
And the only thing that we can debate is the best means to that predetermined end. We were never able to debate, is this policy a good idea? Right. Or, you know, is this policy, do we need to make it a little more nuanced? Because maybe it, maybe it should apply to some people, but not, not mm -hmm. to other people. Mm -hmm. Those conversations were, were totally sidelined. Right. Well, I always used to say, look, if, if the, first and foremost, if this virus was so concerning, especially in the pediatric population, I don't know a mother alive today that wouldn't run out and try to wait in line to get of access course. to the vaccine. Of right? course. There's a reason that parents are having to be <laughs> coerced into getting their children vaccinated. There's a reason that people that are in a healthy um, category and that are under the age of 75 without comorbidities, that they're having to be coerced into getting these vaccines. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to that say, yeah, I'm vaccinated, but I had to do it because of my job, or, you know, I had to do it because I wanted to go to right. go to a play or for any number of reasons, they're being coerced into following this agenda. And, uh, I know you have a book coming out and I am so excited about this book. I can't wait to read it. And it's a topic that I think is really fascinating. So I'd love for you to tell everyone about the book. And then I want to talk about this a little bit because sure. this topic is fascinating to me. Yeah. So the title of the book is The New Abnormal. Mm -hmm. The subtitle is The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, yes. which is a little bit of a kind of scary sounding phrase. But mm -hmm. what I mean by the biomedical security state is what we've seen again in the last 20 years, accelerated mm -hmm. in the last two years during the pandemic, is the, the merging of public health, mm -hmm. digital technologies of surveillance and control, and the police powers of the state. These three things coming together, coalescing during the pandemic, mm -hmm. are not going to go away once the pandemic is officially declared over. Right. Th that infrastructure has already put, been put in place and a new crisis will be uh, discovered or manufactured or what have you so that those tools can be deployed. Again, and, and the best way to kind of hang your hat on a concrete example, I think, is the vaccine passport. Right that was rolled out in 2021 all over the world, including many jurisdictions oh. in the United States. Right? Los Angeles being one of them. Exactly. So, you know, imagine, try to think back to 2018 before the pandemic. If we would have proposed on a mass scale, um, you've got you've to uh, download a QR code that verifies that you did what the public health authorities told you to do, including injecting yourself mm -hmm. with a, a novel uh, and minimally tested pharmaceutical product in order to get on a plane, get on a train, right. go to a movie theater. Unthought uh, of, unheard uh, of, right? Unheard of. People would have obviously immediately rebelled yeah. um, and rejected any such proposal as being contrary to all, all of our basic freedoms and rights and bodily autonomy and so on and so forth. But in the climate of, of fear mm -hmm. that was created by the pandemic response, not mm -hmm. by the virus, by our response to the virus, right? Um, the prolonged lockdowns that got people to the point where they were willing to do anything to get back right. to normal life. Yeah. And if it meant doing something that I didn't really want to do, but it would allow me to right. travel again and see my grandmother mm -hmm. that I haven't visited, or my parents that I haven't visited in two years, then I'm, I'm going to do it even if I don't right. 
want to do it. And so I think it's important for us to step back from everything that's happened and try to think about the larger context in which this this occurred. What what have we accepted mm -hmm. in the name of health security um, that would have seemed ludicrous to us right. three years ago? And were we crazy three years ago to think that was ludicrous or has our thinking maybe veered, <laughs> veered right. off a little bit now? So my book is an attempt to show not only what happened to us, but, mm -hmm. but most of the book is, is devoted to where is this going next? Yeah. And, and what can we expect coming down the pike? And that's so important. People need to pay attention to that because this is, this is the slippery slope, right? We have stepped over the line, in my opinion. And, and there's things that are amazing to me. Like you probably saw that video that was going around the, you know, social media for a while where when the airlines finally declared that you can take masks off and then people are cheering. And I could yeah. not, I, I remember thinking to myself, are you guys all crazy? I'm not going to thank the airlines or the government for giving me the, the freedom <laughs> to breathe freely. That's, that's not a privilege. And I, it, but it's interesting, yeah. right? To, to look at that, the, the human psychology behind that, like we're just so happy to be able to breathe free exactly. that we're cheering. Rights have been turned upside down. Um, you're exactly right, Laura. Um, rights have been turned upside down and become, become privileges that are granted uh, by the government right. when we do what they want us to do. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to my example of vaccine passports, it's good to drill down and critically examine even the language of vaccine mm -hmm. passports. So this is not actually a passport. Mm -hmm. What is a passport? A passport um, is something that allows you to get into a foreign country. Right. You right? don't have to use it to get out of, out of the That's country. That's right. You can go up in a balloon <laughs> and float over Canada if you want. Right. Right. I mean, you could fly around the world. You can, right. if you're Elon Musk, you can launch a spaceship to the moon. Right. Right. What you need a passport for is if you're going to land in Norway or mm -hmm. wherever. So by giving us all this passport, all of us become literally aliens in our own right. land. It's the most alienating right. uh, thing that you could do to a citizen is to tell them uh, that that you're a stranger in a strange land until right. you're given. And the permission is always time limited. Yeah, right? Your passport has an expiration date on it. Mm -hmm. So you know it's good until at least that date. Yes. The expiration date on a vac vaccine passport can change it's at any time. Sure. Sure. Right. With a new booster, suddenly you're no longer fully vaccinated. Right. Right. And they could just announce that yeah. tomorrow. Or monkeypox comes comes <laughs> about, which, by the way, we know. And, and exactly. Doctor, so yeah. so a vaccine passport is not a passport. It's a temporary license to live. Mm -hmm. And do we want to live in a society where governments are routinely granting us temporary licenses to live that can be rescinded at every at any moment mm -hmm. and that will only be renewed um, you know, on a contingency basis right. that we continue doing what we're told to do. Well, let's talk a little bit about the human psychology. This is always fascinating to me. You mentioned something, and I think you're probably the best person to talk about this with, just given your, your knowledge of, of the human psychological state and ethics. Um, there's this concept of health security, feeling that mm -hmm. as though s somehow if I've been vaccinated, if I have proved yep. so that confers security. I've always been of the belief that security is something of, um, of a myth, if you will. There's no real security in anything, but the, the, the minute you're born, you're dying, right? That's right, that's so right. So it's interesting to me that you have the, the human population and we're, it feels very much in particular now, everyone's trying to get to this state of security. Yes, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. 
And the way in which health security has been framed actually makes us less healthy mm -hmm. and paradoxically makes us less secure. And I'll explain yeah. what I mean by that. But the first thing to say is that there are two very basic human needs. Security mm -hmm. is a basic human need. We recognize that sure. in children. Yes. Secure attachment to their parent mm -hmm. helps them to venture out into the world and take risks. Mm -hmm. But that second half of the equation we have to remember is also important. Right. Risk taking is also a basic human need, right? right? Um, mm -hmm. we, we have, tragically, sadly, we have thousands of children die in drowning accidents every mm -hmm. year in California, far more than right. children who die of COVID. It's one of the leading causes of death mm -hmm. for um, infants and toddlers. But no one's rushing out to get, I, I haven't We're, seen the spike or the rise in swim lessons. Right. <laughs> or, or and, and I mean, what's more, no one is proposing that we empty all the swimming pools, right. which would save a lot of those lives. We mm -hmm. know that it would. No, nobody is proposing that we limit the speed, you know, speed limit on, on freeways to 15 miles an hour, even though we know with certainty mm -hmm. that it would save lives in motor vehicle accidents. Because we have to balance safety and security against other important human goods, mm -hmm. like being able to swim and being able to have relatively efficient transportation and so forth. Mm -hmm. So safety and risk need to be in some sort of balance. And this idea that health security can be obtained by exclusively focusing on one illness is also a myth that's been perpetuated right. yeah. during COVID. So while we're doing crazy things to mm -hmm. try to prevent the possibility of getting infected with this right. virus, they're not working. But even suppose right. that they did work, even right. suppose lockdowns and all the rest of it did reduce your risk of getting infected from COVID, they increase your risk of all kinds of other bad it's health outcomes. It's crazy, right? So you're not actually improving your health security by doing these measures. Right. I mean, I had um, a friend who had been fighting to get in to get um, an ovarian, uh, looked like what was an ovarian cyst looked at. And she had to fight and fight and fight. And they said, listen, it's COVID, anything that's considered an elective procedure and I remember her saying how in the world is this elective exactly. I, I have a familial history yeah. of ovarian cancer I need to be seen if I wait six months to a year my situation could have gone to correctable to a death sentence exactly so she fought she gets in she has the procedure turns out that there's a mass on her ovary and had she waited six months it could have been a very different outcome right and I think that that's not an isolated story yeah that story and in various iterations is repeated thousands and thousands of times in the last two years. Absolutely. And even when you're talking about something other than a cyst or a cancer that seems like it's just going to be stable and could wait a year, it still puts patients at increased risk. So a typical example of a quote unquote elective surgery mm -hmm. would be something like a hip replacement for an elderly person. Okay, right. we can do that a year later. Right. But what happens is that elderly person who requires a hip replacement is going to be bed bound for an additional, whatever it is, eight, right. nine, 10 months. Mm -hmm. That increases that individual's morbidity and mortality and risk for all kinds of other right. bad health outcomes. Right. So even these so-called elective surgeries are important for health right. maintenance, if you want to use the term for, right. for health security. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we went crazy <laughs> during <laughs> the pandemic yeah. and we didn't reason about COVID, the way we reason about everything else in life, mm -hmm. where there's trade-offs. No, we're not gonna drain all the swimming pools. We're gonna take reasonable measures to try to make them safer and, mm -hmm. and so forth and get kids into swim lessons. No, we're not gonna cancel uh, you know, everything in order to focus on this one illness. We've never done that before. Right. Obviously, we can't do that because right. 
even things that are that are termed elective in medicine are still very, very important for people's health. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet somehow we were convinced early on yeah. in the pandemic that we had to we had to start yeah. thinking about health security in ways that we've right. never reasoned about anything in our lives in the past. Well, I will tell you, I think the media did an amazing job they convincing did. people that COVID-19 is the scariest thing that they will ever experience. And, and oftentimes I look at people and they'll say, you know, you got to get vaccinated. You got to, you got to wear the mask. You got to, it's, it's, it's really important. I mean, it's, it's, is very scary. And I just sometimes look at them and utter, utterly perplexed. Like they're so frightened of this, but yet they get in their vehicle and I guarantee they exceed the speed limit. Sure. Right? Sure. <laughs> Or, or even just in the realm of infectious disease, right. young people are going to be at higher risk from influenza. So if you have a, right. if you have a young person telling mm-hmm. you how scary COVID is, mm-hmm. ask them, are you scared of the seasonal flu? Mm-hmm. Um, has there been a year where you might have missed the flu vaccine? Did right. that terrify you? Yeah. No? Well, statistically speaking... Yeah. You're at greater risk from that. Exactly. So it's so bizarre. But I think the thing that scares me the most is exactly what your book is about. That to me is much, much more frightening than COVID nineteen. Well, well, the book tries to get at because I was puzzled. After a while, I started to realize, okay, I'm focused on trying to calmly and soberly present accurate information and accurate data when it comes to lockdowns and right. vaccines and mental health harms of many of the things that we're doing. Putting on my psychiatrist hat mm-hmm. and. and that seemed to move the needle very, very little, or only helped people that were already predisposed to, right. to, to maybe be sympathetic to, to questioning the narrative. And so I started to think, okay, well, if this is not really about public health, right. what is it about? Mm-hmm. Which can take you down some you know, strange rabbit conspiratorial holes. Yes. rabbit holes, <laughs> but just at a very simple level, mm-hmm. um, a, a follow the money approach, Right? Who benefited financially from lockdowns, mm-hmm. vaccine mandates, and vaccine passports? Who benefited financially from the public health approach that we took? Who was harmed financially? Who, who did benefit? I mean, I think I know, but I... So the, the, biggest, um, the biggest gains were in the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Mm-hmm. The, the billionaire class of big tech moguls mm-hmm. uh, did enormously well. So Amazon lobbied on the West Coast for lockdowns in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Why did they do that? Is Jeff Bezos an expert in public health? No, they did that because in the first month of lockdowns, their sales went up 57% versus mm-hmm. the same month the, the year before. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos made a record $70 billion right. in Right, 57% of Amazon sales is not you know 57% of your family store that's on you exactly. know, down, you know, Main Street America. It's not only that they, that they gained when people were locked at home and then had to order their goods online and shift from going to the local store to, to e-commerce with mm-hmm. Amazon, but they also destroyed the competition because mm-hmm. there were hundreds of thousands of businesses that closed, most of which have not been able to reopen even after lockdowns right. have ended in most places. So there was, we saw during COVID the largest upward transfer of wealth in human history from the working class mm-hmm. and the middle class, not just to the upper class, but to the very tip of the upper class right. pyramid, okay, the, da- <laughs> the, the, the Davos crowd, uh, the, right. the, the, the people right. flying right. around the world on, yeah. on their pl- private jets. And um, 
so that, that's those are the first folks that benefited. Obviously, the pharmaceutical industry benefited. The mm -hmm. the, the vaccines uh, between Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson were a hundred billion dollar mm -hmm. industry in their first year. A hundred billion dollars is a lot of money. So I kept, you know, I was with my lawsuit against the university challenging the mandates on behalf of people with natural immunity like right. me, people who had recovered from COVID, mm -hmm. kept banging my head against the wall. Why won't the public health establishment acknowledge natural immunity? And then it just occurred to me, well, they'll acknowledge it as, as soon as someone learns how to, figures out how to monetize it. How to monetize it. it, absolutely. Right, because it, if, if the CDC acknowledges natural immunity, the next question is how many people have it? We know now that that number is 70 to 75%, depending mm -hmm. on the age bracket. Um, so you're talking about cutting into a, a profit of, of $100 billion by, you know, at that time it was probably 50%. Now it would be 75% of the people yeah. who you're claiming need this vaccine don't actually need it. That's a lot of money at stake. Mm -hmm. That kind of money buys a lot of influence. The largest uh, advertising revenues for all large media companies, mm -hmm. conglomerates, the big six, uh, is pharmaceutical dollars. Mm -hmm. 75, 70 to 75% mm -hmm. of their advertising re revenue comes from pharmaceutical dollars. So when, when you yeah. when you just start following the trail of the money, certain pieces well, begin to begin clear. to fall into place. But and, and there are political interests sure. at work as well. If we're talking about setting up uh, a digital ID vaccine mm -hmm. passport system of surveillance that offers uh, people with with certain levels of access, a lot of control, of course, over individuals Which and over their lives, scary. a very, very wow. invasive, intimate level of control and that's going to be attractive to people right. who believe that they know how the world should work and how other people should behave and if only we can get the masses you know the mm -hmm. sort of recalcitrant you know dumb population that doesn't know sure. what's good for them if only we can get them to to behave then everything would right. be great well this is a very attractive way right. to we try to do that and do an end run around democratic institutions that are messy and require compromise and i i have to tell you i was surprised about just how compliant of a, of a society we are that actually shocked me and, me too and and yeah. i continue to see it and I, and one of the, the the classic examples to me is you know, I'll see someone, even even as recent as this morning, I'm at a store and I see someone with a mask on their chin, right? There's no requirement to wear masks anymore. Right. So you don't have to wear the mask. And clearly if you're wearing it on your chin, you know that that's not providing any type of prevention of disease transmission. What you're doing is you're saying, you're just, you're just wearing a banner that says, I'm here to comply. You tell me what to do. I will, I will completely comply. That's right. And it was it's surprising to me how compliant yeah. the society has become. I'm not sure when that happened because that's not like the, what do they call it, the greatest generation, the world war. My grandfather, Absolutely. who was a Marine in Guadalcanal. It's hard to imagine. That wasn't his generation. Both of my grandfathers who fought in the Second World War mm -hmm. going along with a program like this. It would never happen. Yeah. It would never happen. So all of this has been unbelievably fascinating and, uh, enlightening it always is when i talk to you dr cariotti so tell everyone when your book is coming out and then how people can follow you so the book comes out on uh actually my birthday october 25th wow. um i'm not soliciting birthday greetings in october oh, but everybody uh, better take that's how i remember it so <laughs>
Uh, but you can, it's available now for pre-order okay. on Amazon. If you don't want to buy from Amazon, you can go to Regnery, okay. which is the publisher, and they have links to the other site. From all of us at The Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.